please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read Mark's Palm Sunday account from chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and he will send it back here without delay. They left and found a colt on the street tied at a door, and they untied it. Some who were standing there asked them, what are you doing untying that colt? The disciples answered them just as Jesus had instructed them, and the men let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments on it, and Jesus sat on it. Many people spread their garments on the road. Others spread branches that they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus went into the temple courts in Jerusalem and looked around at everything. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the gospel of our Lord. We pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, our Palm Sunday King. You and I know this day as Palm Sunday. What you may not realize is that throughout church history, and even in some Christian churches still today, they know it as Passion Sunday. They, they try to encapsulate in this one Sunday service all of Passion Week. It, it starts out with palms, but by the end of the service, you have Jesus hanging and dying on the cross. Why, why do you think they would try to do that? I did a little research on it, and, and I came across many different reasons and explanations, but I think the, the easiest explanation is probably the most obvious one and perhaps the most cynical one. Many church leaders don't believe that their members are willing to take an extra two days and two hours out of their weeks during Holy Week to actually come to church and worship on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday to actually be there on those days that commemorate Jesus' passion, what he had to do for our salvation. Well, Lutheran reformers broke with that ritual, with, with trying to cram all of Holy Week just into one day. And they, they set aside Palm Sunday to be celebrated in its own right, especially embracing all of the contradictions that we find on this day. And so that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus today on the Palm Sunday paradox. Things that don't seem to go together, but in the end, prove to be a glorious truth for us. Jesus enters Jerusalem on this day unlike any other time he had entered Jerusalem. He enters it as a king. Did you you sense the majesty? Go into the village ahead of you as soon as you enter it. You will find a cold tide there in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and he will send it back here without delay. They left and found a colt on the street, tied at a door, and they untied it. Some who were standing there asked them, what are you doing untying that colt? 
The disciples answered them just as Jesus had instructed them, and the men let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments on it, and Jesus sat on it. Majestic, isn't it? Jesus tells two of his disciples to go on a curious mission, to say the least. They go. He requisitions a colt that didn't belong to him, that belonged to somebody else, and, and they gave it up with hardly any questions asked. And not only do Jesus' disciples and the owners of that colt obey Jesus' word, but but even the colt does. I have never been involved with breaking an animal, much less a colt, but what I understand is that it's nearly impossible to ride an unbroken colt. And yet this colt, on which no one had ever ridden before, submits to its creator, submits to its king, and humbly carries Jesus. And the majesty doesn't end there either. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowds gather. There seemed to be one crowd coming from behind, one crowd coming out to meet him from Jerusalem, and and many of his disciples already with him. The, The crowd began to grow and grow. Most scholars think that at this time, during the Passover, there could have been at least 250,000 people in Jerusalem at that time. So the crowd could be quite large. Now, people today honor heads of state in all sorts of different ways. But I have never seen a video where people are ripping off their coats and throwing them on the ground and going out into the fields to cut off palm branches to, to lay on the ground before the, the leader comes so that that leader doesn't have to put his feet on the dust of the road, but that's what these people were doing. They acclaim him, they hail him as their king, the rightful heir of David, of the throne of David. And what's more, they even, they even claim him, acclaim him as Savior. They say, Hosanna, it's a, a Hebrew word which means save us now. There's majesty everywhere. And the strange thing is that this is really the first time that Jesus invites the praise and the acclamation. He doesn't try to quiet them down at all. You remember many times in his earlier ministry, Jesus would tell his disciples after he did a miracle, be quiet, don't tell anyone about this. But now he he welcomes the praise. He even tells his enemies if the people, if the crowds are quiet, the very stones will start to shout. Finally, he enters into the temple and he looks around like he owns a place, which of course he does. What royalty? What majesty? And after following Jesus for these five weeks of Lent, doesn't it make you wonder, who is this guy? Where did he come from? We've just spent five weeks of listening to Jesus tell us what lay in his future. It was not raining in a in a palace somewhere. It was not being draped in the royal purple of a king, but rather suffering and death, betrayal and torture. That's what he said lay in his future. So what's happening here? That he's coming into Jerusalem being acclaimed as a majestic king. Where is this all coming from? Surely Jesus' disciples and some of those people in the crowd had to remember what this Jesus was really like for most of his ministry, right? Where's, where's the, the poor Jew who didn't even have two nickels to scrape together to pay the temple tax? Where's the son of man who didn't even have a, a place to lay his head even though the foxes and the, the birds all have a place to live? 
Where's that prophet whose own hometown people from Nazareth persecuted and drove out? Where is that Jesus? And you think the disciples had to have those stories ringing in their ears, right? But apparently they forgot. The pomp and circumstance of the day, the, the, the shouting of the crowds, the singing of the children, all pushed those memories of, of Jesus' prophecies of humiliation out of their minds. And, and it's hard to blame them, right? For them, Jesus was finally acting like the king they wanted him to be. Finally acting like the powerful Messiah who would come to save them from their enemies. They could only imagine him taking his seat in the palace and kicking out the, the evil Romans. Ruling over his people and, and providing for them. And isn't that really the kind of king that we often want to? In fact, sadly, this is the kind of Jesus that is preached in, in far too many churches in our world and in our own nation. A Jesus of, of power and glamour and glory and, and authority. A Jesus who, if you follow him, he would never let you suffer. He would never let you be sick or depressed or afraid of the future. A Jesus who can control an unbroken beast of burden like this colt, he certainly wouldn't let any natural disasters strike you, much less a, a mutant virus to harm you. Isn't this the kind of Jesus that that we would like to have? A Jesus who could provide for all of our physical needs, who could, who could raise us up out of humility to be, to be worshipped and, and praised just like he is. Yeah, a, a king like that. A king like that, he would fill churches all around the world, wouldn't he? A mighty, magnificent king like that. But then there's the the harsh reality of today, as we sang in our hymn, there was no tramp of soldiers marching feet with banners and with drums, no sound of music's martial beat. The King of Glory comes. There was none of that. Yes, he came into Jerusalem as a king, but a king of what? A colt? There are some precedents in the Old Testament for, for having royalty ride on a donkey. In fact, King David put his son Solomon on a donkey to prove that he was the rightful heir to the throne. But he didn't put him on a miserable little colt. If you want to picture this in your own mind, don't picture a, 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 big, a big donkey. Picture a little tiny, a miniature horse-sized donkey. Have you ever seen a full-grown man try to ride a miniature horse? It's ridiculous looking. Even if you see some of the more accurate artist portrayals of Jesus riding into Jerusalem... It looks silly. His feet are basically scraping on the dust. That doesn't look royal. That doesn't look regal. Everyone in the world knows that kings don't ride on colts. They ride on stallions. They ride in chariots. Today they ride in Mercedes Benzes. In fact, the people, this is just a little side note, the people of Kenya have a, a term for their powerful and famous and influential people. They call them Wabenzi for the type of car that they ride around in, Mercedes-Benzes. This guy doesn't look royal. This guy doesn't look regal riding in on a humble beast of burden like that. Yeah, he comes into Jerusalem as a conquering king, and yet you don't see his enemies there quivering in their boots. You don't see the Jewish leaders and the Romans get down on their knees and beg him for mercy. But he's really come to attack sin, death, and the devil. And you don't see sin, death, 
and the devil running scared, do you? In fact, it's just the opposite. From the other gospel accounts, we know that the, the leaders of the people, the Jewish leaders, they're, they're at this event. They're at his entrance. They're planning all the more how they're going to kill Jesus. Sin, death, and the devil, they're just in the background. That's something that we would have been, we are very well acquainted with, aren't we? Aren't there those days when the weight of sin and guilt just suffocates you? When you feel the storm clouds of your own death and you can see them in the not too distant future? When the devil is accusing you and saying, God could never love someone like you. Those are the things that Jesus faced as he was marching into Jerusalem on that colt. Even at the temple, we don't see majesty, do we? Yeah, he, he, he rides right in there and he, he looks around like he owns a place, which he does, but he's not crowned there. He's not enthroned there. The people don't hail him as Emmanuel, that is God with us. What's even worse, he can't even stay there in his own house. There's precedent for that. Jesus, Jesus left the city limits. He left the temple that night. He went back to Bethany because he was as good as a convicted criminal already in the eyes of God. And as God commanded in the Old Testament, anyone who is going to be crucified, anyone who is going to be put to death for their crimes, had to be taken outside of the city limits. Jesus is already bearing that burden for us. Yeah, there's majesty, all right, but there's a very strange thread of humility here. And that's where we find our answer. This Jesus who enters in great humility is really the king we need, isn't it? We don't need a king to be shouting orders at us. We don't need a king to be only telling us how to live our lives. We don't need a king to rule over us with an iron fist. We don't need a king who expects us to serve him. We need just the opposite. We need a king who will serve us. We need an unblemished lamb. We need a sacrifice. In fact, we need something even lower on the totem pole than that. We need a scapegoat. We need God to load our sins on Jesus' back and punish him for it. The idea of a scapegoat comes from the Old Testament too. On the great day of atonement, the high priest would take two different goats. One of them would be slaughtered, and then the, the high priest would take his still bloody hands and put his hands on the on the head of that other goat and send it out into the wilderness, symbolically carrying away the sins of the people. That's what we need. But for Jesus to be able to do that, he needed to be sinless. If you have to answer for your own sins, you can't carry the sins of anyone else. And that's just the kind of king we have, a sinless king. That's, in fact, why the devil took aim at him immediately after his baptism. Remember, Jesus was baptized and immediately Satan pounced on him in the wilderness. Satan knew that if he could get Jesus to stumble just once, just commit one little sin in thought, word, or deed, he could no longer be our Savior. Well, Satan failed. Jesus was victorious. Jesus never sinned. And so he could ride here into Jerusalem, being carried by a donkey, but more importantly, carrying our sins and the sins of the world. 
It's no wonder that sin, death, and the devil were all licking their chops, right? Ready to take one last final shot at Jesus, try to get him to trip up, because if, if they could succeed in getting him to trip up just once, we would all be doomed to die forever in hell. Of course, we know the rest of the story already, right? We know that that unholy trinity was defeated, that Jesus emerged victorious. And that is our, our truest comfort from Holy Week, but isn't there some comfort in how Jesus did it? How Jesus accomplished our victory? He didn't do it like the kings of this earth do. He didn't do it by having an army fight his battles for him. He didn't do it with might and power and glory and fame. He did it by giving up all of that. He did it by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And isn't that comforting for us? If Jesus had conquered majestically, he wouldn't really be too appealing to any of us, would he? I look around, I don't see a whole lot of majesty here in this room. Do you see majesty when you look in the mirror? If Jesus had conquered majestically, he might be appealing to those in this world who get some taste of that in their lives, who get to experience the fame and the glory that this world can shower on them. Maybe he would be appealing to the, the Prince Harrys and the Meghan Markles of the world, but what about you? What about me? We're nameless, faceless. We suffer daily. We undergo trials and tribulations. If anything, humility, not majesty, describe our lives. Most of all, does anybody look majestic when they are lying in a casket assuming room temperature? We don't need a majestic king. We need a humble king. And Jesus is the king we need. He came to offer himself for us, not have us die for him. He came to serve, not to be served. And that explains his, his humble entrance. That explains all of these contradictions that we see here on Palm Sunday. That there is the majesty. There is the fact that, that Jesus is acclaimed as king and he's called the Savior, but he does it in such a humble way. And the majesty doesn't last very long until he has to go back out of the city to once again carry the sins of the world. That's why... That's why we don't try to cram all of Holy Week into this one day, this one hour. We let Palm Sunday stand on its own. And it's not just because we believe that confessional Lutherans will be happy and eager to take an hour out of their Thursday and Friday later on this week to celebrate and hear again what Jesus had to go through for their salvation. It's because there's plenty here on Palm Sunday to celebrate in its own right, isn't there? Jesus comes as a king, but a king unlike any other king this world has ever seen. He is majestically humble. He comes to his city not to rule, but to die. Those are the paradoxes we find here on Palm Sunday. Yeah, there, there's, there's a dose of majesty here, right? Jesus is acclaimed as king. He's, he's praised as savior. The people hail him and lay their coats and their palm branches before him, but, but there's a weird kind of humility woven in there, isn't there, among the majesty? 
His feet are dragging on the ground because he's riding on a colt, a miniature horse. He comes into his city, but his enemies are all gathering sin, death, and the devil, the Jewish leaders, the Romans. They're all gathering, waiting to take their final, last, best shot at him. Which just goes to prove that, just, that this is the Jesus we need. This is the King humble, everyday sinners like you and I need. Because he doesn't ride into Jerusalem to conquer us, but to rule us. And it is only from his sacrifice on the cross that the Easter lilies of next Sunday will sprout. There's a certain paradox here, isn't there? A certain contradiction. Yeah, there's the majesty we can see with our eyes, but there's suffering, there's sacrifice, there's death in the future. But the glory in this day is that we know that the suffering and the sacrifice and the death will give way to Easter morning when we shout, Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. That's our Palm Sunday paradox. Amen.